Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Hello, and thanks for listening to the BuildCast. I wanted to take a moment to introduce you to David Goldstein. I had the great pleasure of speaking with him back in mid-February when vaccinations were just being rolled out, as you will hear in this episode. David is an energy efficiency expert with the Natural, not National, Resource Defense Council. I had been messing up his organization's name for years, and he corrected me during our conversation. So to be clear, he is with the Natural Resource Defense Council, which you can find a link to in the show notes. David is currently serving on the boards of several major NGOs that focus on transforming markets for energy efficiency, such as the Institute for Market Transformation. He is also an ASHRAE 90.1 Residential Buildings Committee member and a board member of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversations today. David, how in the world are you today? I'm doing pretty good considering. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a vaccine dose on Saturday. So I'm counting the days towards being less worried about um, the virus and hoping that everyone gets the chance for the vaccination in the next month or two. Yeah, congratulations, that's uh, great news. Um, where are you based in? Are you in San Francisco area? Uh, yeah, I'm in San Francisco. We're in a very dense neighborhood, which kind of shoots holes in the myth that density has something to do with COVID because we've got about the best safety record in the United States. Well, that's great because California as a, as a whole is uh, has been suffering pretty badly, it seems like. Well, it goes up and down. What seems to happen is uh, someplace will get a good handle on the virus and make such progress that they think, oh, the pressure's off. We can just relax and go back to the stupid ways of doing things again. Yeah. And then a month or two later, um, the inevitable happens. They say, oh my God, we should have done something about it a month ago. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm so happy that uh, you got your vaccine. Um, I I think I'm gonna be way down on the, the totem pole, but uh, who knows? There seems to be um, uh, opportunities that's, that spring up at the last minute with uh, ensuring that no doses go to waste. So maybe I'll, I'll be lucky there. There's all sorts of silly last minute opportunities. It's what it's yeah. really like. I used to travel a ridiculous amount when people traveled. And there was a time when you had to call up the airline at exactly midnight to be first in line for the upgrade. So whatever you were doing, you needed to be on the phone at 9.01 p.m. Pacific time. And, and that's what the vaccine is like. You, you gotta yeah. keep logging on or calling some number or something. And most of the time you're wasting your time. Then the one time you hit the jackpot. Not yeah. the best way well, to do I'm, it. But. Yes, very happy for you. That's great, that's great. So David, um, I don't know you very well. 
I, I see you at uh, ResNet conferences and other conferences speaking, and I, I look up at the stage and, and see you speaking, and I think there's a, a really bright and, and smart man uh, imparting some really important knowledge, but I really don't have an idea of what in the world you do. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit about what, what, you, what you actually do uh, with these different groups that you're involved with? Uh, sure. I work on what you might call science policy, and thank you for the very flattering introduction there. Um, and what that means is using a basic understanding of physics and the associated engineering arts um, to decide how do you get a desired result. So in my case, the desired result is uh, eliminating the threat of climate change. And then you have to work backwards. How do you do that? Well, the easiest, biggest thing to do is reduce the burning of fossil fuels. And how do you do that? The biggest uh, arrow in the quiver is energy efficiency. So how do you deliver energy efficiency? So it's, it's really a series of questions, starting with the broad and going down to specifics of um, how do you make this happen? So I, I, I really characterize my work as advocacy. In other words, you try to figure out what's the right answer from a scientific and legal point of view, and then how do you get it done? Who, who do you have to convince? What evidence do they need? Um, I mean, frankly, you would ask, what if I'm wrong? What would I, you know, how would I be convinced that I'd made a mistake? And what would I change if I did? Um, so, you know, we're working a lot with um, government agencies and nonprofit organizations on setting standards for energy efficiency, and we're working on legislation that might allow financial incentives for efficiency, uh, best example being the 45L tax credit for new homes. Yeah. Is the National Resource Defense Council uh, a quasi-governmental agency? Or, uh, no, first it's natural, not national. Everybody makes oh, that mistake. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so you don't even get to feel special about it. Um, but it's a nonprofit membership organization. So I'm hereby inviting anyone who's listening to uh, join the organization. It's nrdc.org. And uh, we will do uh, advocacy across a whole range of environmental issues but uh, limiting climate change is the signature issue that we work for. And um, how did you um, focus in on climate change? It's, you know, the it's climate change in essence has been a buzzword for uh, a number of years, but um, it, it seems to me that you've, you've focused on this uh, way before maybe uh, the rest of us have. Well, I had the good fortune to be in a peer group of people who were very much plugged in to the scientific issues of climate change, even when I was in graduate school. So uh, there is a study that I still have uh, from 1966, maybe, or 69, warning about climate change and specifying the kinds of things that we have to do to stop it. Now, this if you think about it, this is before energy efficiency even existed as an academic discipline yeah. or uh, something that specialists would do in the business world. So it was a very small step 
uh, with this kind of exposure from the leading experts at UC Berkeley and at Princeton on, okay, first step, we've got a problem and we've got a lot of time, or we had it then, to do something about it. Um, what's the something? The something is reduce the consumption of fossil fuels. And the, the people that I was exposed to, not the fellow students alone, but the professors that were, were teaching us, uh, were beginning to look at why are we using so much energy? Um, my uh, lead professor on my PhD, uh, Art Rosenfeld, um, did this quick calculation and, and he was, Art was a student of Enrico Fermi who invented the uh, very simple kind of problem uh, asking things like, how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago? And your job was knowing nothing about piano tuning or Chicago other than, well, I think it's got about 2 million people in it and how many people have pianos? You can work through a set of logical assumptions and come up with an answer that's factor of two, factor of three accurate. Wow. Rather than doing a whole experiment. And Art would do that with energy consumption. And he would figure that um, he had a very beautiful, nice, large office. And he would figure that the fossil fuel burned in my office over the weekend when the lights are on 24-7 um, was more than the amount of energy I burn in my car. So no, it's not just about driving less, which we could figure out in 1973. It's also about turning off your lights. And gosh, why are we having so much, so much lighting in the first place? What's the economic benefit of having office buildings lit so much? Answer, there wasn't any. Um, why don't we have automatic controls or, or even a level back? Why don't we have controls that allow someone to turn off the lights in their office when they leave, rather than having the whole floor on one circuit? And what are the technologies for making light so that we can use a lot less electricity and produce the same amount of light? So compared to the fluorescent lights that Art had in his office at the time, uh, current technology is more than twice as efficient just at producing the light, and another, I'm going to make up the number, about 50% more efficient at getting it out of the fixture and onto the desk surface where you really need it. Wow. And so this, um, did this desire to get involved in this uh, stem from your studies? Uh, I believe I was reading you went to uh, Cal Berkeley uh, to get your PhD in physics? Sure, it's, it, was, it was really an evolution of thought because physics was something I enjoyed doing, felt I was pretty good at, um, but I was much more interested in applications to solving societal problems rather than just uh, discovering the next elementary particle or, or contributing to pure knowledge. So I had this more practical approach. Um, and Berkeley was a very comfortable environment for doing that. Um, a friend of mine who got his PhD about the same time as I did uh, realized that what we call pure physics was always, in fact, not pure, but it was associated with practical needs. So we learned about um, kinematics, how, how uh, objects move through space 
because the army was worried about how uh, cannonballs fly through space so that you could aim them and hit your targets. Uh, so similarly, a, a lot of the development of physics was because there were commercial or military applications of the physics knowledge. In this case, we were looking at public interest applications of physics knowledge. Uh, so that's that's really that, that was an easy path for me to follow because it was kind of in the air at the time I was in undergraduate and graduate school. It seems like it's uh, uh, was a new way of using physics, though, at that time. Yeah, it was certainly an, a new way at the time, and it was an, an area that uh, physics education was was very valuable. So. In 1973, when I was beginning um, graduate school, uh, there was a study by one of the major banks on the potential for conservation. And they said, well, if we tried really hard and all these things went right, we might save as much as 5%. Uh, the physics community didn't think that was right. So the American Physical Society gathered a number of experts, and I had the good fortune to be exposed to many of these folks um, as, a, as a graduate student to answer the question, how much farther with efficiency can we go than we are right now? And it won't surprise members of this audience to learn that the answers were, well, at least a factor of three or four, sometimes 10, sometimes even more than that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Did um before you uh, ended up at Berkeley, was physics uh, something that was important to you, or how, how did you discover your passion for, for that? Yeah, well, numbers have always been a, something that I've been fascinated with from, from the time I really before I even went to school. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing similar things with my uh, grandson, who we're taking care of three days a week, who's uh, four and a half and is asking questions like, how fast does a rocket have to go to get into orbit or to take a mission to Mars? Um, so so this, this was deep in my personality. Uh, so that was the physics part of it. But again, um, I was interested in, in solving problems that I saw around me. Growing up in a very segregated community, I saw racism as, as an issue that needed to be dealt with and something that I wanted to try to help fix. Uh, problem is, I didn't have the skill set to do anything very original on that. Whereas if it had to do with numbers, um, it, it was something that I felt I could make more of a difference. Yeah. Did you grow up on the West Coast as well? Uh, no, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, I was uh, born in, in Cincinnati, but uh, made our way to Colorado um, uh, very early in my, my life. So I don't remember Cincinnati very much. Interesting. Um, so now you're using, um, using this with these different uh, NGOs. How many um, uh, different organizations are you involved with? Well, at this point, I'm on four boards, Institute for Market Transformation, Consortium for Energy Efficiency, ResNet, and New Buildings Institute. Uh, so that's the closest um, 
collaborations. And of course, I work with the Alliance to Save Energy and the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy and a few others on a collegial basis as opposed to a governing basis. So I, th I think the community is very strong in doing a lot of important things. Uh, that's that's a big deal because I don't think anyone accomplishes anything important as an individual. All, all really important changes have to be accomplished as group endeavors and having these groups formally organized uh, makes things happen much more effectively. Yeah. When do you feel like uh, progress has really been uh, gaining momentum? Is that, do you think it's just happening now or do you feel like we've made good progress in the past? This is a, on one hand, on the other hand, kind of, of story. Uh, we've made really good progress throughout the 45 year history of energy efficiency on one hand. On the other hand, it has been some places and not all places. And because of that, the environmental needs are much more dire than we had hoped they would have been 40 years ago, looking 40 years forward. The, the, the important thing is that climate pollution is cumulative. It's not like, um, you know, how much smoke is there in the room when the windows are open. It's more like you have a bathtub and you have a certain amount of water that can flow into it before it overflows. And we've been running the spigots too fast and the drains have been too clogged for so many years. The, the remaining safe emissions budget is very small right now. And so we've got to look at things like emergency retrofit programs that maybe we wouldn't have had to do if we'd been uh, more effective politically um 20 30 40 years ago yeah so it, it sounds like we missed an opportunity when uh, president carter was was in office uh, to really move things forward at that time yeah we we started moving in the right direction but um got diverted into some eddy streams like synthetic fuels in the late 70s and then this um mistaken belief that if you support free markets you think government regulation is a bad thing that occurred during the reagan bush years mm -hmm. um, you know we had uh, a lot of our progress really the overwhelming bulk of our progress on energy efficiency over the past 50 years has been things like um, building codes for new homes and commercial buildings, appliance efficiency standards, lighting efficiency standards, fuel economy standards for cars. And those weren't moving as quickly forward as they should have been even in the Carter administration, at least on the national level. There, there was good activity in the state level. Um, but then the progress came grinding to a halt under Reagan and Bush. And again, these are continual improvement uh, processes where if you don't get started early, you can never catch up. Yeah, yeah. How, how are those things measured with any accuracy, though? Uh, if you take building codes, for example, on paper, they're making, you know, big progresses from cycle to cycle. Uh, but in implementation, 
um, they're not being enforced and they're not they're they're getting heavily amended when through the adoption process so how do we know that they're really um, affecting change Is that's there a way really to that's a really good question and there there's two aspects to it one is after you've done the paper calculations you need to get out there in the field and see what's really happening and that still isn't going on enough um, because part of the scientific method part of the method for continual improvement is you think you're doing the right thing you need to go out and measure is this what's happening if it isn't even in detail why isn't it happening that way should it be happening a different way and what do you need to change in order to get your plan to be realized and you do this at least every year um, on codes the data that we have it's pretty sketchy but the data we have is more optimistic than your question would imply uh, doe did a study on residential codes a couple years ago that found that if you take the uh, observed levels of insulation and installation quality and things that um, home energy raters would would check they, they hired raters to do this um, study and you put those observed results into a model and you ask what percentage of expected energy use did you realize given the inspected level of insulation hvac equipment duct leakage and so on and the answer was you actually saved a little bit more energy than you would have thought because even though there was something like 20 percent non-compliance there was also a lot of over compliance and the overcompliance tended to um, be a little, a little bit larger than the mistakes. So what 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 we seem to be seeing is that builders would respond as an as a market to what was in the codes, and maybe not everyone would do it. But also, you know, if your neighboring state required U equals 0.4 windows and you didn't the market would be u equals 0.4 and that's what you get whether you ordered it or not okay interesting yeah the um it's it, i was fortunate to be involved in a residential field study uh in colorado this uh in 2020 uh and it you know from the field work it's a bit frustrating uh, because you see all these things that aren't being adhered to from a code perspective uh, so it's good to hear that um, at least that there's evidence that there's progress being made um, there sure yeah and we can do better and we should do better because a typical house over the life of a mortgage which is much shorter than the life of the house is going to have $75,000 in utility bills. And the median price of a house last time I looked was about a quarter million. So 75,000 compared to 250, that's a big number. It matters. If it was yeah. 150,000 instead of 75,000, you would really care. And in theory, your bank would really care. And the investor in that mortgage that the bank sold it to would really care. So the, yeah. this, status that we should be evolving to and this is not a new idea this is going back to your question where have we blown it where have we not 
done what we needed to do. Every house in the country should be rated. Yeah. And that yeah. would provide the opportunity if something was not up to code, the owner would know it. They would not only know it wasn't up to code, but they would know what component of it wasn't up to code. And maybe that's where they ought to concentrate on, on repairs. Um, yeah, getting it um, linked in with the, the mortgage industry has, has been such a struggle. When I became a Raider in the early 90s, uh, my whole, everything was focused on existing homes really uh, at that time and through the energy efficient mortgage and the energy improvement mortgage. But we we still have not been able to break into the mortgage industry and the real estate transactional side of the equation. Do you have any insights on how we can how we can move that forward? I don't know if you call it an insight, but I, I find the situation curious and hard to explain uh, because putting energy efficiency ratings into mortgage qualification is a win-win for all parties to the transaction. Uh, it benefits the homeowner because it gives them extra cash to do retrofits. It benefits the investor in the mortgage because it's less likely to default and because the resale value will be higher if it, even if it does default. And doing the same for location efficiency, which refers to how much money and energy go into driving to and from the house. And that's actually a way bigger number than energy efficiency. I mentioned 30 years of energy bills being $7,000, being $75,000. 30 years of driving to and from the house is more like $350,000. It's bigger than the house itself, yeah. assuming the house is in suburban sprawl. And why should everyone care about it? Because the depression of 2007 to 9 was triggered by mortgage defaults. And the mortgages that defaulted were not the ones around me where people don't need a car because the location efficiency is so good. They were the ones remote from the central cities in large metro areas. And this, this was a pattern that duplicated all over the country. So you would think that the people who lost trillions of dollars on the mortgage meltdown would say, we don't want that to ever happen again. Uh, let's do something about it. Yeah. Um, and have it. Yeah. This this has second order effects that are interesting because at the time I was predicting that if you ignore energy efficiency, if you ignore location efficiency, which are implicated in defaults, then what you're going to do in response to the crash of 2007 is you're going to tighten up on the things that you have understood for 50 years and make it harder to qualify for a loan. And that's exactly what the industry did. And as a result, we have a housing shortage. We have ex exploding homelessness all over the country. We have fewer homes being constructed now than we had 30 years ago. Um, so we've, we've tightened up mortgage qualifications so much that my kids' generation can't afford houses anymore. Yeah. This is something that would benefit everyone to fix. And I'm totally baffled as to yeah. why the industry hasn't done anything about it. Yeah, that simple, I'm sorry, that simple um, uh, move on the uh, the PITI uh, can can get so many uh, people qualified to, to buy a house that, uh, that couldn't normally, it seems, yeah, it is baffling. 
I almost wonder if it's a, a microeconomic situation. It seems to me that the real estate industry is threatened by the energy efficient mortgage because it slows the process of the of closing that house, the closing that deal. They they and they don't know how to express if I go in and say this house needs attic insulation, the realtor doesn't know whose responsibility is that? Is that the responsibility of the buyer or the responsibility of the seller? And they never could grasp that you're giving the buyer an opportunity to wrap that into their mortgage. It's not the responsibility of the seller of that house. Yeah, this is not a radical change. This is like you're doing a home inspection, which you're doing anyway, and you find evidence of termites and you've got to remediate the termite problem. It's, it's, it's exactly the same thing. Um, if it was customary for all homes to be rated, then you just have a box, and there already is one, yeah. saying what's the predicted home energy cost from the rating. If you fill in the numbers, one number to fill in, it's not very tricky. Location efficiency is even easier than that. You basically look at zip plus four, and you go to a website which the current, the previous administration has taken down, but the um, Obama administration had the website. And you'd enter your income and family size, which is on the mortgage application in the first place. And it would give you the number. You know, how much simpler can it be than that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very surprised at it, uh, but I'm hopeful that this new administration will also react with, what the heck is this about? We can we can just change it. I mean, if if HUD decided to change this situation tomorrow, it would be changed in a month. Yeah. Is that uh, control? Is that enough? I mean, our our opportunity is in the existing home market, really more than the new home market, but. It seems like more efforts are being made on the new home side with the federal tax credit and and whatnot. Um, how do we spur on the existing home side? What well, what I would like to see is some kind of a competition among energy efficiency providers like utilities or state energy offices or nonprofit organizations. And the reason is this: we really don't know how to run a cost-optimized retrofit program aimed at 100 million houses across the, the country. Or, or rather, we do know how to do it, but with the way we know how to do it is to have the agency that's running the program do everything and pay for it. We, weatherization. weatherization. We've done experiments like this in the 80s and 90s that I'm aware of. And by the way, if anyone who's listening to this has an experience that we're not aware of, please let us know. Uh, but I'm only aware of two successful programs. Both of them picked a small community, about 3,000 homes or 3,000 people, I think it was homes, and said, we're gonna try to retrofit this whole community to state-of-the-art deep retrofit standards. So something that would cost well over $10,000 today um, in three years. So a year to plan, three years to implement, we are going to do it by contacting the homeowner, 
doing a free energy audit, providing a contractor that they can just say yes to with the scope of work that they can just say yes to, handling all the financial and logistic arrangements, and at the end, paying all the costs. And they got 85% plus participation, which essentially is 100%, because some homes aren't, aren't even amenable to the physical measures that they'd be doing. And they got that in three years. So yeah, we can do this technically. The problem was that would be practically $3 trillion of financial payments that would go to people who are already benefiting from the upgrades in comfort, health, and utility bill reductions. So what I would like to see is some competition about how can you get the same five-year, call it, timescale to doing retrofits and have the owner pay the lion's share of the costs. Can we do that? Mm. Yeah. It's uh, interesting, the, the link between that and the existing, uh, existing home chapter of the IECC and and I believe the IRC, they, there's a real um, difficulty in the code world for how do you deal with an existing home because they they only want to deal with the, that portion of the home that's being affected, whereas from an energy side of the equation, it's the total package that needs to be addressed. Um, there. Well, I'm trying to address that in a partial way through my work with ASHRAE Standard 90.2. And the committee at ASHRAE that's responsible for that standard has decided, uh, just what you were saying, Rob, that there is the need for a retrofit standard which sets a performance level. And so we're working with unanimous support of the committee members on how can you develop a retrofit standard. So. Um, this would be uh, a technical resource to a city or a state that might say at some trigger point, and we're not at ASHRAE, we're not political or legal experts, we're not going to tell you what the trigger point is, uh, we want the building to meet the following spec. So we're looking at should it be an ERI, uh, HERS rating? Or should it be a, an ERI contingent on something? So maybe you say, I want my existing home brought up to a HERS 50 standard. Oh, unless it has uninsulated brick load-bearing walls, in which case you only need to get to a 65. Um, or maybe it's mm -hmm. a prescriptive level. Here's what to do with the walls, sealing the windows, or something else. But just some technical description of a building needs to perform at the following level yeah. as of trigger event. Yeah, I think uh, even before that, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about on the IACC side uh, in the co-development process is how do you benchmark that existing home before uh, before you go in and do an addition or uh, an upgrade to that house that would involve a permit, uh, because you've got to you've got to benchmark it, and then you can say, I need from a code perspective, it needs to be 10% better than it started, or it needs to be, you know, X percentage better than it started, and the ERI pathway is a perfect 
pathway to benchmark it uh, before you start your upgrade and uh, after you've done your upgrade to see if you've been successful. And you're bringing up a really interesting technical question because I talked to you just a moment ago by saying the standard would be bring your house up to an ERI 45 or whatever. What you said is no, reduce 30% from wherever you started with. We don't even know which of those specifications is better. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's yeah. your choice, or maybe it's whichever one is more stringent. That's that's one of the things that we're trying to, to figure out. And, and it's surprising to me that we do not yet know whether percent improvement over how you found it, or absolute target, or conditional target, depending on what you find in the inspection, is a better metric. And what's more practical in the marketplace to achieve, I wonder as well. Yeah, hmm. well, one of, one of the things I think we can contribute is we, we've had this unhelpful competition between the DOE Home Energy Score and the ResNet uh, HERS rating. And I think we need a better harmonization of those in which the uh, Home Energy Score, which has the primary advantage that it's cheaper and faster, could yeah. report on a scale that's similar to the HERS rating and be part of the same kind of process. Because in my observation, knowing just how bad the home is when you start off, particularly with respect to air leakage, isn't all that important. What's important is knowing how good it is after you've done the retrofit. So you go into an existing home, you probably don't need a duct blaster to tell you that the ducts leak. You should just assume they leak. Yeah. You know, if you want to do it and, and determine, yeah, maybe I don't need this, fine. But it, it seems like uh, the cost-benefit ratio of doing these more detailed diagnostics is not there. So having a harmonized, simplified rating just to get a scope of work for what you're going to do to the house, and then the um, high-quality uh, final rating saying, you know, someone's going to shell out money based on this result. You want it to be accurate. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I have done a, a few of these uh, benchmarking uh, improvement type ratings, and to simplify things, I end up using a default number which is a, a worst case, poorly performing duct system, for example, um, at the benchmarking stage, because you're right, it doesn't make sense. I know it's leaky. It doesn't make sense to spend the time or money to uh, quantify that. But at the end of the process, that's when you want to do that test to, to quantify it and, and know where you're actually at um, there. Yeah, and you know that, that also, I think, brings us into better harmony with the, the market that's out there because you know retrofit programs are way smaller than they need to be, even in the best regions of the country. But they're not trivial. They're reaching out to significant numbers of people. And part of that industry has said, you know, our sales model is that we send someone into the house to do a rating and we use that as a way of getting customers, as a way of saying we're going to give you the rating for free or discounted, or well, it'll be free if you go ahead and do the work. And they don't want to or need to spend a lot of money. And they also don't 
want to or need to have this third party separation between the rater at the end of the project and the company that's doing the work. And you think about it, they have a point. There's no reason that you need the um, high ethical standards for an audit test because the homeowner either is or isn't going to sign the contract to get the, the retrofit work done. Uh, where, where you need the third partiness is afterward because you're vouching for the value and the quality of what's been done. Yeah, interesting. So we're seeing in Colorado, specifically Denver, and other large jurisdictions around the country where their climate action goals are far outpacing the where energy codes are and other standards that are trying to measure this. Um, do you feel that uh, that there's the relevance of the IECC or the ASHRAE standard that you've talked about? How how do we how do we develop these standards fast enough for these cities and jurisdictions around the country that want to um, want to use something? Well, want to the, achieve a goal, I guess, that's smart, far outreaching it. Well, the, the, the problem with the IECC is, as far as I know, the council has never established climate protection as one of the reasons why their standard even exists. So if you're not trying to do something, it's unlikely that you're gonna succeed. Uh, in ASHRAE, the goal was a little vaguer, but had something to do with climate because ASHRAE leadership told the 90.2 committee, we wanted a leadership standard on a path to net zero by 2030. So path to net zero by 2030, that's clearly inspired by climate change prevention. Uh, and so, we on the committee are taking that very seriously with respect to the, the next revision. So, so that at least will be a product that says, here is what we think you can do if you, a jurisdiction or a company or whatever, has an ambitious climate goal. Uh, because you're right, the, the broad goals, you know, we're going to cut 60% by 2030, we're going to be net zero by 2050. Uh, if you do all the specific policy actions that are on the table, you won't get there. It's not enough. The, the urgency is a lot higher than people thought. Um, if I can digress for a second, why is that? Why is it so much more urgent? Well, the simple reason we've touched on is we've squandered so many years filling the bathtub with pollution. There isn't a lot of, uh, as much space left. But the second reason is that climate scientists have reached more of a consensus that, hey guys, this is a little bit worse than we thought. And so it used to be that we thought the goal was stabilizing on a two degree C increase in global temperatures. And now we're saying, no, no, that's not really good enough. It has to be at the worst, well below two degrees. I call that 1.8, because like 1.95 is not well below two, 1.8 is well below two. 1.8. Okay, and an ambitious goal, pursue efforts to limit climate change to 1.5. By the way, pursue efforts, these are carefully thought out words. It does not mean pursue consideration or think about efforts. It means do yeah. something. Uh, well, how, how much more difficult is 1.5? 1 
but we're already at one, 1.0 1 something. So we're more, we're the difference from where we are now at one to two. Wow, if you go to 1.5, you've cut that in half. So suddenly whatever you thought your cumulative pollution budget was, you've got to cut half of that again. And wow, that's really difficult. That's why these plans haven't aligned, but that's all the more reason that we've got to take the, the, the places where they recognize the, the seriousness of the climate threat and say, okay, here's the things that you have to do. And they, they look pretty dramatic and pretty ambitious until you try to do them. And then you go through it and you say, well, and actually that wasn't so hard. Yeah. It, it, I, I see what you're saying that it doesn't seem that hard, but it, seem, it, it must be threatening to people's personal economics and business economics, uh, because that seems to be where people are, are fighting against it as, as much as they are. And it, yeah. you know, not embracing this issue. Well, there isn't a chorus of voices speaking out and saying, we need to retrofit 100% buildings in 10 years. There are a few of us who've been saying that, but that isn't, if you're not uh, an energy geek, that's not the message you've heard, and it needs to be. I mean, let's take the Biden administration, for example. They're coming into office with the most ambitious climate change prevention agenda of any candidate in American history. And it's still not enough. Their retrofit program would expand retrofits by about a factor of five or 10, I think. Uh, and that's another factor of at least three or five too small. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's on the other hand, look at all the unemployed people, look at the kinds of trades and businesses where the unemployment is worst, look at the interest rates that you can borrow money at, which are practically zero. Um, this is what the economy needs. This is to, if you want to restore the kinds of in-person, hands-on jobs that we've lost since COVID, retrofits are the, one of the most natural connections that you can possibly make. Yeah, interesting. So another issue that's coming up uh, specifically in Denver that I thought might have an interesting tie to your personal experience is the issue of uh, equity uh, with regards to um, developing policies that can bring housing and uh, EVs and other um, uh, climate change policies to to fruition, I, I guess. Um, with your experience that you briefly mentioned in uh, Cleveland when you were growing up uh, with racism and equity issues, I'm sure, um, how do you see that uh, impacting our ability to move forward? I think the goals are very, very complementary, um, particularly when you look at including location efficiency and financing. The areas that are the highest in location efficiency, looking at it casually, I haven't done any studies, uh, are minority areas. And in fact, looking at the redlining maps that kept African-American households from qualifying for mortgages and looking at the location efficiency maps, they're very closely the same thing. 
So failing to count location efficiency is a systematic racism problem that we would correct if we start putting location efficiency in there. We'd also um, help solve, help solve, not solve all by itself, some of the problems of gentrification adversely affecting African-American and Hispanic communities. Because if these folks are already living in areas that would benefit from location efficiency consideration, um, you know, a lot of better off families um, are seeing those areas as attractive now and moving in and displacing the existing residents who can be displaced because they're renters and not homeowners. And part of the reason they're renters and not homeowners is they can't qualify for home ownership under current mortgage rules. So imagine you, know, you had an area that was gentrifying, but 20 years ago, we counted location efficiency and we had other policies that assured that tenants who wanted to be homeowners had the ability to say, yeah, I want to do this. Well, suddenly all these wealthier families are trying to move in, but the existing residents own their homes. So they don't, they're not going to be displaced. They already own. Or if they are displaced, they'll be displaced with a half a million dollars in their pocket, which is not so bad. You know, there's a, there's a huge difference in wealth, not income, wealth between African-Americans and um, whites. and one of the biggest reasons that's been put forward is the wealth buildup in white families because they qualified for loans and, and were homeowners. So this, this is a way of remedy, remedying that large source of, of systematic racism. Then secondly, on retrofits. Once you admit that we are going to have to retrofit every home in the country, you are automatically solving the equity problem because every home now qualifies. You're not going to have people left behind. Nobody's going to be left behind. We need to fix all of the homes. And the only question you have at that point is the pacing of it. You know, do, do poorer people come in sooner or later? There are advantages and disadvantages to each. But um, just making sure that one, everyone gets it, and two, that it is the same. What I'm afraid of if we don't do this in a thoughtful way is we have a low income weatherization program, which is sort of the second class citizenship of weatherization. And then we have the market rate program, which will give you better health, safety and comfort features and bigger energy savings. And this is the time we wanna say, no, we're gonna come up with a good package that serves everyone. Yeah, yeah. And if we're if if our goal is to um, touch every house in America, uh, you still think that the free market's the, the, going to be able to do that, um, or will it have to be more government-based program? Part of the difficulty in answering that question is what you mean by markets. Uh, I think we want to do this in as market-based a way as we can. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, you know, markets have this interesting characteristic that they show learning curves and returns to scale. So it may not be that each homeowner deciding separately what to do is the best idea. 
weren't made. But let's let's design our program so that we find out. Let's maybe have locally different programs. So in one program, one big contractor comes through with his truck, does every house in the neighborhood to the same specs. Another one, maybe each homeowner does their own side negotiation. A third one, maybe it's just onesie twosie and, and see what works. Because we, we haven't tried it on this scale and to assume we know the right answer and just go ahead and do everyone the same, um, that's, that's a dangerous assumption. Yeah. How are uh, some of the organizations that you're working with uh, trying to move this concept forward, and is it being heard? Is it being received well, or or not? It's being received well in the areas that are listening, and that's a much smaller set of areas than we would like to see. Um, listen, we've had a, a 50-year disinformation campaign on climate change that has been supported by the very limited number of companies that see themselves as losing if we do something about climate change. Um, I Notice I say see themselves as, because I think even oil companies can make money off preventing climate change. Uh, I can get into that if you want to ask. Oil companies well, company specifically seem to be changing their tune right now. Well, that's a good thing to the extent that it's real. Um, because if we had true collaboration where everyone is delivering the same message, where everyone is saying, hey, this is uh, gonna look crazy to you, but here's how we move forward. In other words, if we had more of a consensus among the interest groups, and I'm thinking particularly the business advocacy organizations, we're all saying the same thing, let's do it this way. And if you're worried about market-oriented versus government programs, let's talk about what is market-oriented enough to satisfy uh, business interests and ideologies, and at the same time, effective and, and get the work done. Uh, I, th I think that can move things forward. We, we've seen a lot of companies stepping up after the US temporarily withdrew from the Paris Agreement that say, we're still in. And they've made a lot of commitments on net zero energy or 100% renewables. So there, there is a lot of interest, at least selectively in the business community at the very large uh, business organizations to work together on this. So I'm, I'm hoping that with a different uh, voice in Washington, D.C., uh, we can put together partnerships on a scale that we haven't been able to do up, up until now. Yeah. So it sounds like you're feeling pretty optimistic that our 2030, 2035, 2050 uh, type climate goals uh, are going to be achieved? Hopeful, as opposed to optimistic. Hopeful says we can do it. We know we can do it. We just have to try hard enough and um, be smart enough. Optimistic, how will it turn out? Eh, don't know. Um, it's sort of like the, the issue, um, could I run a marathon next year? And to answer that question, you have to know that the farthest I've ever run in my whole life is three miles. So am I 
should someone be optimistic that I could run a marathon next year? Hell no, because I've never come even close. Um, on the other hand, I've never wanted to. I've never had the motivation. And if something really important were dependent on whether I could run a marathon at the end of the year, um, I would try to do it. And I'm very confident, and my personal trainer is as well, that I could do it if it meant something. I think that's where we are with with climate change. We're asking ourselves to do things that we have never done before. But if you look at what it actually takes to do it, like there's nothing that's really scary about it. We just have to decide to do some things different. So yeah, um, I, I, I've gone through the analysis in some detail and a fair US share of a 1.5 degree goal uh, is very feasible. Um, U.S. is no longer the biggest source of the problem. So let's ask about China and India. Uh, look at their attitudes towards stopping climate change over the last 10 years, and you will observe a sea change in what they thought. 10 years ago, India was saying, we can't do something about climate change because we're a struggling, developing country. We need to get our people out of poverty, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now they're saying, um, clean energy investment is the pathway out of poverty. And they set a very ambitious, ridiculous renewable energy goal for 2022, which they are going to meet as far as I've been able to see. And they're, I think it's tripling it for a few years later. So suddenly they're going from, we're gonna set a goal, ha ha ha, you know, we're never gonna meet it, but we're gonna set the goal. Oh my God, we're actually meeting it. Well, let's let's make it more ambitious. And they're, they're starting to see how this is serving their other national needs, such as breathable air. Um, and China, the same thing, you know, they were, they're talking about uh, maxing out oil consumption by 2025. Uh, that is light years away from where they were talking 10 years ago. So you're starting to see in these developing economies uh, recognition that clean energy investment serves other important economic and health and environmental needs. Uh, so, so that's a reason, that's a very strong reason for hope. Yeah, yeah. So is there, uh, can you identify one thing that we should be uh, collectively trying to do to, to move things forward as we close out here? The problem with trying to identify one thing is this is not a problem that a silver bullet will solve. This is not even silver buckshot. It's more like silver birdshot. You have to do lots of different things at once. Uh, and hey, we're smart, we're grown-ups. We know how to do lots of things at once. And if our community can't do the lots of things, we can at least say, here, here's something else that someone else ought to be doing. So to me, this community should be focusing on stuff it knows, like energy codes and uh, retrofitting everyone and getting transparency and disclosure, not just for homes with energy ratings, but for commercial buildings with transparency of, you know, it can be as simple as the Energy Star portfolio manager score, which they're doing in a number of cities across the country. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's one very big piece that we're very far behind on, but there are, there are other important pieces 
in the transportation sector and in the industrial sector. And here's something that no one ever thought about until a couple of recent zero net energy conferences, and that is, what about the energy, the emissions used to construct the house? And it turns out if your goal is maximum savings by 2030, you can save as much emissions by reducing the construction impacts by 30% as you can by reducing the operational energy almost all the way to zero. R rough calculation, there are real numbers that will support yeah. that detail. But that's a whole brand new area that we would like to see addressed that this community can, can start thinking about. Yeah, well, I think that's a great, place to, to end on this holistic approach. Uh, we need everyone to get involved and everyone to uh, uh, push everybody else, you know, that we do it to this together uh, to move forward. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation and it's really, we're, we're very fortunate to have you uh, help guide us uh, forward in our, in our industry specifically, but with this bigger challenge uh, as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for leading the discussion in such productive directions. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website www.btankinc.com Thank you Ben Sound for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it and you for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify or your favorite platform If you enjoyed our show and are willing please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily Thanks again for listening and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.